0: Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. Known around the world as one of the best loved child advocates and television personalities was Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He was known for his kind nature and childlike wonder. But what many may not have recognized was that he was a learning scientist. He was far ahead of his time, and today's learning scientists are focusing on many of the same things that Mr. Rogers did, such as encouraging in children curiosity, collaboration, communication, inclusivity, self-acceptance, coming up with creative solutions, and how to be a good friend. These are the tools now scientifically proven to be essential to children's success and well-being, and they are up to 10 times more accurate at predicting a child's success than a test score or grades. In a new book highlighting these findings, authors Greg Baer and Ryan Witzeski are reintroducing Mr. Rogers and his teachings to today's children, parents, and educators, sharing with a new generation the power of curiosity through creativity. On today's episode, I have the chance to talk with Greg and Ryan about their book, The Research of Dr. George Land, and tools identified as essential for learning. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, Annette. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Absolutely. So, your book, I've already said the title, When You Wonder You're Learning, and it's based on Mr. Rogers' enduring lessons. What prompted you to write a book based on Mr. Rogers and why, you know, why Fred Rogers?
1: Well, first and foremost, it's a book about learning. And it's a, a book that stems from nearly 15 years of work here in Southwestern Pennsylvania. For 15 years, schools, museums, libraries, and all of the educators who work in these and other learning spaces have been coming together under something called Remake Learning, which is this amazing network of educators in and out of school, pre-K through higher ed, thinking about what is relevant, what is engaging, what is equitable in support of young people and the learning experiences that we're trying to create for them. I mention this because very early on, we started talking about Fred Rogers, and it's easier in 2021 than in 2007 to articulate this, but we talk about the Fred method and the ways in which these educators involved in remake learning take advantage of what Fred Rogers did. And we can think about Fred's work in a simple formula, whole child plus learning sciences equals the Fred method. That is like Fred Rogers, these educators are grounded in child development theory and practice, understand what's developmentally appropriate for children and youth. And they're also learning from what we're learning about, learning itself from places right here in our backyard, like Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh, but also campuses of higher education and research institutes across this country. And I mentioned the learning sciences because for me and Ryan, this was our big aha. That is seeing Fred Rogers as a learning scientist, not just as that childhood hero of ours, not just as some convenient story to talk about education and learning, but really understanding Fred Rogers and his work as someone who was a learning scientist, a learning engineer, someone who was deliberate and um, intentional about what it is that he did with his program. And that's what we're finding among educators all across Southwestern Pennsylvania who are involved in REMIC learning.
2: One of the things that struck us early on was just how far ahead of his time Fred Rogers was. Um, You know, if you talk to some of the leading learning scientists today, many of whom are working right here in Pittsburgh at places like Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, Uh, if you read their research papers, if you go to their conferences, uh, which we've been doing a lot of over the past few years, they talk a lot like Fred does. It's interesting. They don't necessarily sound like scientists at first. Um, They don't talk about charts and graphs. They don't talk about things that are being measured. Increasingly, they're talking about things like how do we make sure kids feel safe? How do we make sure kids feel like they belong to a community that cares about them? How do we make sure that kids feel that they are loved and capable of loving? Um, when learning scientists speak today, they sound a lot like Mr. Rogers in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Um, and once we realized that, we, we realized we had a book on our hands. And we realized that what Fred was doing, you know, starting in 1968, in many ways, learning science is, is just catching up to him now.
0: You're absolutely right. So far ahead of his time, it's it's there's so much more to what he offered. I think than you know maybe what was on face value, the television personality as beloved as that was. So in your book, you describe tools for learning, um, and they're described as essential. Can you tell us a little bit about what the tools for learning are?
2: Sure. So it's probably most helpful to start with why these tools matter, and I'll get into briefly what they are. So just to give you an example, um, a couple of years ago, Google was trying to figure out what makes a good boss. For a long time, they had just assumed that the people who know the most stuff should be promoted. You know, If you can write computer code in your sleep, then you're automatically going to be a good boss. Google being Google decided to validate that. And they did this massive analysis of their own teams. They studied performance evaluations and employee surveys and exit interviews. And what they found, was that content is important, there's no way around it. If you're gonna work at Google, if you're gonna be a boss, you have to be a great programmer. But among the things they found that mattered most, content expertise ranked almost last. The more important things, the things Googlers wanted to see in their bosses were things like communication. There were things like curiosity. Can you come up with creative solutions to problems? Do you care about your colleagues and their well-being? they wanted all these very human qualities that Fred spent so many decades teaching in Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And these are what he called his tools for learning. Uh, in the book, we break them down as curiosity, creativity, communication, collaboration, um, learning and growing, which is a sort of umbrella term for things like growth mindset, uh, and connection, which is, um, of course, what we remember Rogers for most, which is the power of human relationships. Um, all of these tools have been shown not only at Google, but in just about every aspect of life to be essential to children's success. They're up to 10 times more predictive of children's long term success than test scores. Mm. Uh, they have been shown to benefit everything from academic outcomes to mental health to even physical health and children's overall well being. They cost almost nothing to develop, and they hinge on the very things that we think and that Rogers thought make life worth living, which are self-acceptance, close and loving relationships, and a deep regard for for our neighbors. So again, this is Rogers being ahead of his time. The things he focused on in the neighborhood are now scientifically proven to be essential to children's success. And at places like Google, they are the most essential things uh, you can have to succeed.
0: And so- You know, we always feel like there's individuals in the world that are uh, more or less curious, um, you know, with curiosity being kind of an inherent part of them or not as much. So how can curiosity be incited in oneself or others? Or is it something that's built into all of us?
1: Well, you just said it and it's it's built into each of us. It's not something that some people have and some people don't. Rather, it's a learned behavior that we lose our curiosity and we lose our creativity. And so what we need to do is to tap into that curiosity that we have as young kids and the ways in which we ask questions and the ways that we dance and sing and explore, what is it that we can do to maintain that sensibility? And as Fred Rogers would say, a great atmosphere for learning that supports that sort of curiosity. So what is it that a teacher does in a classroom or a librarian does in a library space? Well, so much of it goes back to what Ryan was just saying about creating a human and humane environment, creating a space, an atmosphere for learning where kids feel like they belong, where they matter, where they feel respected, where they feel like they're safe, both psychologically and physically. It's those grounding elements that are absolutely critical and essential for the moments that we then begin to be curious about what's possible. and and start to wonder about, what happens if I put these two numbers together? What happens if I take apart this toy and look in in what's inside? One can't be curious absent the grounding um, effect that a a teacher or an educator creates in creating that safe, respecting um, environment where you say, I belong and I wanna learn.
0: So you kind of touched upon creativity as well. And I want to lead into that because I feel like curiosity and creativity are very intertwined. Um, But creativity as well, I feel like there's kind of a label that's placed on some individuals. Um, This is a creative individual. This is not so much a creative individual. So in your book, you highlight a study that was conducted by Dr. George Land that tested for and tracked creativity in children, beginning with one year olds Tell us a little bit about what was tracked and kind of what does that mean, tracking that creativity from childhood through to adulthood?
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting study. Uh, so in 1968, Dr. George Land tested the creativity of a 1005 year olds using a test that he had developed um, for NASA, uh, of all places. Uh, what he found was that 98% of those five-year-olds scored so high on Dr. Land's test that they qualified as creative geniuses. Like we know that kids come up with strange and sometimes ingenious solutions to problems. They paint pictures and they make up stories and songs. They're inherently creative. Anyone who spent time around a five-year-old tends to see this pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But George Land, you know, he discovered something else. He tested that same group of five-year-olds every five years. And what he found was that at 10 years old, the share of creative geniuses fell from 98% to 30%. And when they turned 15, it fell from 30% to 12%. And by the time they were adults, the share of creative geniuses had fallen from 98% to 2%. And what Land and his team concluded was, as Greg alluded to earlier, that non-creative behavior is learned. That creativity is something that's inherent to all of us, as we saw in those 98% of five-year-olds. But you know, as we get older and as we get more self-conscious um, and as our peers start to give up their creative pursuits, you know, they put down their paintbrushes and they give up their musical instruments. A lot of us have you know, a string of creative pursuits that we've, we've abandoned uh, over the course of our lives. We learn to become less creative. We learn to become less expressive, less open to new ways of thinking. Rogers, you know, in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, really tried to counteract those non-creative behaviors, those learned non-creative behaviors. And the way he did so really started with adults. Um, one of the most important things he learned from his mentor, Margaret McFarlane, who was a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, was the Quaker philosophy, that attitudes are caught, not taught. And so Rogers really modeled creativity. In almost any episode, you can find him doing things that you know, adults might consider childish. Fred sits down and he draws pictures of butterflies and houses and rainbows and he cuts things out of construction paper and he builds things out of popsicle sticks and he plays with puppets and he makes up songs. He does all these things that children do, but he, as he sits there doing them, he shows kids that, you know, what he's doing brings him joy. The creativity doesn't have to be just for kids. And it wasn't just Fred, you know, he brought countless creative adults into the neighborhood. Sometimes those were creative professionals, people like you know, Winton Marsalis and Yo-Yo Ma and Julia Child, but often they were just everyday people. You know, if you remember the the program, Officer uh, Francois uh, Clements was the neighborhood police officer, but also the neighborhood opera singer. Mm -hmm. Andy Negri was the neighborhood's fix-it guy, but he was also the neighborhood guitarist. You Mm -hmm. know, all these guest stars and all these characters showed kids that they don't have to give up their creative pursuits. And in fact, the creative pursuits can enrich our lives and they can make life better for the people around us.
1: And there's a great example from Margaret McFarland, um, whom we mentioned, Ryan just mentioned, as having worked with Fred Rogers. And this connects right back to the learning sciences. Margaret McFarland was a premier child development psychologist of the 20th century and worked with Eric Erickson and Benjamin Spock, among others, to create the Arsenal Children's Family Center here in, in the Pittsburgh region and on one occasion brought a world-renowned sculpturalist to um, Arsenal. And the sculpturalist said, what what do you want me to do? And what is it that you want me to to show kids? And, And her pure instruction to him was, I just want the kids to see you loving the clay in front of them. And to me, that's just a perfect moment of Margaret conveying to another educator, in this case, an artist, that idea that attitudes are caught and and how it is that we do simple things, reframe what we do to convey that joy and love of learning, which kids, young people, adults need to see continuously.
0: And so your book, is it for educators and school leaders or is it for everyone in many walks of life?
1: Well, the joyful thing is that a lot of people say, I'm glad as a human being that I read this book. Um, Mm -hmm. There's something so instructive and affirming and uplifting about Fred Rogers blueprints for life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That said, we wrote this book, particularly mindful of the role of parents, families and caregivers, Mm -hmm. and then our educators, the teachers, the librarians, the after school directors, anyone who works in what we would describe as the caring profession, where they are responsible for the well-being and instruction of, of, of children, whether that's at home or in a school.
2: And I would add to that. And that we used to say, you know, we, we think anybody who knows and loves Fred Rogers will love this book. And, and we certainly hope that's the case. What we've been finding as, you know, with the book has been out since April and it is slowly making its way around the world. And what we've been finding And hearing from folks in other countries where Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you know, is not known, where Fred is not a cultural icon, that this book is resonating even for them. And I think that speaks to the timelessness and the universality of what Fred was teaching, the deep humanity of what Fred was teaching. So we hope that, um, yes, parents, educators, caregivers, yes, fans of Fred Rogers, but... uh, As Greg said, hopefully any human being uh, will find something in in what Fred taught.
0: I would think that's probably true. I've worked in creative services a long time in my career, and I definitely found some great takeaways out of it myself. So it is a great read. I read the book, and it's really great. So where can listeners find access to the book and or any additional resources or contact with you? How, How can that be found?
2: Sure. So they can find the book, um, wherever they buy their books. We always, uh, recommend going to your local independent bookstore, but of course you can find it online. And if you go to when you you'll find a list of, um, places to buy it. You'll find a contact form where you can reach us. We would love to hear from your listeners, any questions, comments, stories about Fred, almost everybody has one. Um, they can reach us. Yeah. When you wonder.org.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you both. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Greg. This was a great conversation. And I know we just barely scratched the surface. So thank you so much.
1: Annette, thank you. And to all of your listeners, thank you. Thank you.
0: Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by Clever. That's spelled C-L-E-V-R. And the website is weareclever.com. Visit our website at keyedradio.org for more information on today's podcast topic or to listen to past episodes. If you're listening to us on Spotify, click follow so you'll be notified when a new episode is available. And feel free to share out the episodes that resonate so your friends, colleagues, and community can tune in to hear about the topics that are impacting public education. This is Annette Stevenson saying thanks for listening to Keystone Education Radio.
1: The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.